John chapter 11, and uh, look at verse 45 when you find your place, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's words. You, uh, your, you preachers will understand what I'm about to say, I think. I, nobody else probably will, and I'm not putting us on a pedestal, but, and maybe some Sunday school teachers might, but as you're preaching through a book, sometimes you get to some, some, a text and you think, this is good, it's good stuff. And uh, I'm going to tell you, the Lord helped me outline this thing out really nice and pretty. But then I got to the point about Thursday, I said, all right, Lord, I got this outline. Where's the message? Where's the message, Lord? And it wasn't that God didn't have a message in his word, but here's what I prayed about Thursday afternoon or so, Thursday night. I said, Lord, where's the message for us on Sunday? Because you know who's going to be here and you who you know is not going to be here and you know what we need as our church on Sunday morning. You, where's the message here? And as, as alliterated as I've got it, I mean, it's, it's, to be honest with you, it was one of those times, preachers, that, that as it was coming off, as I was reading it, it was a boom, 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 boom. Man, that's, that's good. I, put, I may write a little outline book. I'm so good at it. But that ain't, outline ain't going to get, now I got an outline, but outline ain't going to get the job done. Where's the message that God wants for our people at this particular time? I believe the Lord's given it to us. I'm going to try to preach it to you this morning. John chapter 11, verse 45. The Bible says this. Then many of the Jews came to Mary and, uh, and, and, and had seen the things which Jesus did. Of course, what did he just do is he just got Lazarus up out of the grave. Okay, so that's specifically what has just happened. And then the Bible says this, many have done this, and the very end of verse 45, believed on him. Verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only. But for that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves. As they stood in the temple, what think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, were he should show it, that they might Take him. Would you help us pray and you be seated? Father, we love you. Thank you so much 
for the service that we're in this morning. Thank you for meeting with us. Lord, we, say, we know your word is true when it said uh, when there's two or three gathered in your name, there you would be in the midst. And Lord, we know that you're here this morning. God, we know that. We know it because we, uh, we, we have you abiding in us and dwelling in us. And we have the word of God here. And we've been uh, praising your name and magnifying your name and what you did for us. So we know that you inhabit the praises of your people. So we know that you're here. And God, we need you to work in many different ways. I'm glad you're a God that can. You're omnipresent. You're omnipotent. Uh, you're all omniscient. Lord, you know everything. You can do anything. And Lord, you can work and help me as I try to proclaim your word. And then you can be working in the hearts of the people. And Lord, I ask you, Lord, to do some searching. Do some uh, searching of the souls of men in this congregation this morning. And I pray, God, as I try to preach this message, Lord, that the Holy Ghost of God would work and move and, and uh, convict and convince and convert sinners unto themselves. And then I pray for us that are saved. God, I pray that something would challenge us and spark us to live for you better in the days to come. I ask you, Lord, to help us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the Word of God. We have been in the Gospel of John, I don't know, many months now and we have seen, I hope you have seen this, that the Gospel of John it would be rightly called the Gospel of Belief. The gospel of belief. And throughout all the pages of this particular gospel, there is an emphasis on saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, John says it at the end of this book in chapter 20, verse 31. John said that he wrote this. The purpose of writing this book was so that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his Name. That is the mission statement or the purpose statement of the gospel according to John. It is the gospel of belief. And with that purpose, that is what you see in every account, in every story that John records. There is a, and then also with that, we see a consistent presentation that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Matter of fact, that is the theme of the Gospel of John. That Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Matter of fact, the famous seven I am statements statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John are statements that Christ was declaring himself as God. He is deity. He is divine. He is the Messiah they were working, uh, looking for. And that's what we, we understand that. But let me say this. Those religious Jews understood that. They knew what he was claiming to be. They knew who he was claiming to be. There was no doubt about it. And that's why they were so mad at him. That's why they were so irate with him. Remember, the only accusation they could give was the accusation of blasphemy. You are claiming to be God. They understood that clearly. I don't know why the JWs don't understand that, or the Mormons, or this other group, these other groups that can't find that in their Bible, maybe because they're not looking in the Bible, but looking in some other book. But listen, we see time and time again, Jesus claiming to be God. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. All those I am statements. Now, he didn't just say it though. 
What did he do to authenticate that, those statements? What did he do to substantiate those claims? What did he do? He performed many miracles. And those miracles were there to teach a lesson that he was indeed God Almighty. Seven, I say, uh, everybody will say seven, but I believe you'd say, be honest, if we was honest today, John records eight Miracles, seven before the resurrection. There's one more after the resurrection, sometimes gets left out. But eight miracles are recorded in John, seven of them before the resurrection. And here we are in this God, in this chapter, chapter number 11, and we find the last miracle Jesus performs before he goes to the cross. It's the last one, at least, that John records, maybe the last one, which we know he puts the ear on the man uh, on his way to the cross, but that's not recorded in John. And so, this is the last miracle recorded in the Gospel of John before we get to the cross. And these la- this last miracle, if you will, is a display of divine power when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Not going to deal with that again today, but last week we talked about how that, yes, he had, ri- he had rose or he had ra- raised a little girl from her deathbed just maybe, maybe hours after she had died. And, and then we know that he rose. He raised a young man uh, right out of the coffin. And it might have been the same day that he died because Jews didn't wait several days to do the burial. They did it the very day. So even in the same day that that young man had died, uh, that widow of Nain's son, Jesus got him up out of the grave. But Lazarus didn't die just a few hours ago or earlier that day. He had been dead and buried for four whole days. Martha says he already stinks. I mean, he's already decaying. He's already Already starting to uh, decompose. Lord, don't open that stone. It is going to be bad if you do. Listen, Lazarus, I know there is no levels of deadness as we said last Sunday, but he was dead, 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 dead. Four times dead. Four days he's been dead. And Jesus comes and simply calls his name and he walks up out of the tomb. And there Jesus puts that almost, if you could say, final stamp on who he was. He is divine. He is deity. He is the God of life and he is the God over death. He is God over everything. He is claiming that and now he has substantiated that claim with the miracle. And what this miracle does, it strengthens those who believe on him and it substantiates his claim to be God. I thought about that and... And thought about that claim to be God. Taught this morning in our Sunday school class, we dealt with the deity of Christ because we're talking about personal soul winning. We're talking about personal evangelism, witnessing to people. And there are a lot of, uh, lot of combatants. There are a lot of things or questions or, or things that people would bring up as you're witnessing them. But there is one major thing that we must answer and we must be able to give an answer for. And that is the deity of Christ. No one has ever been saved without believing that Jesus is God. See, because if Jesus is not God, he cannot be sinless. And if he is not sinless, he cannot die for the sins of any other man but his own. And so if Jesus is not God, you don't believe that, then my friend, you are lost without God this morning. And you cannot be saved until you realize that Jesus Christ is God. It's part of that part of the gospel presentation where you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Well, the only way he can be the only way of salvation is that he is God. The deity of Christ is so important. But I thought about this. That claim... 
that Jesus is God always brings people to a decision. They are either going to acknowledge it as truth or they're going to reject it as false. And there's only two responses. Belief or unbelief. Jesus records it like this and is recorded like this in John 3 where Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. See, there is no third option. There is no neutral position toward Christ. Matter of fact, those who claim to be indifferent towards him are actually in opposition. Of him, according to Jesus himself in Luke chapter number 11, when he said this, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not, uh, gathereth not with me scattereth. And I thought about this claim bringing people to a decision. And this claim of being God, we see it all through the history, all through the account of Jesus walking on this earth. In his ministry, he faced a lot of opposition. You think about just in his own hometown, in Nazareth, where you would think everybody would believe him. Oh, they rejected him. Matter of fact, wanted to kill him. They rejected him openly. I thought about this. If you look at the opposition he faced in his ministry, he was rejected openly. He was accused of being demon-possessed. His miracles were attributed to his power that he has because he is a Satan follower. He was charged with violating traditions. He was accused of being a blasphemer. He was, he was uh, belittled for associating with outcasts of society. He was marked for violating man-made Sabbath laws. He, uh, they disputed his authority. They challenged his teachings. And ultimately, they plotted successfully to take his life. His ministry was full of opposition. They hated then there was others, though. Others reacted with indifference. You watch this crowd, and, and they were just following to see the next big thing. They wanted to hear the next, uh, next controversial message, right? They wanted to see the next big miracle on display. They were enamored by excitement and even entertainment, but they were false believers. Matter of fact, Jesus spoke to three different cities about their indifference. Because the Bible doesn't say that Chorazon or Bethsaida or Capernaum, it doesn't say they rejected him, it just says they repented not. And Jesus tells these three cities, these three cities who saw a lot of his miracles, who saw many great works that he done, heard his message, he told them that their indifference was worse than the paganism and the idolatry found in Tyre and Sidon. And if you don't know what that means, you will know what this means. And he said, and it's worse than the immorality going on down in Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, your indifference, your unwillingness to repent and believe who I am is worse than that pagan idolatry crowd and that immoral Sodomite crowd down there. Your indifference is going against you. Your indifference is speaking against you. And then, so we got the opposition crowd, you got the indifference crowd, but then you got that little flock 
That little flock of faith of the folk whose faith in Jesus was genuine. Some like the 12 disciples minus Judas, they believed on him and they left everything to follow him. They believed he was the Son of God and they affirmed he is the Son of God. They proclaimed that he is the Son of God. He would go into some cities and as he would preach or as he would do miracles or whatever he would do there, the Bible records in some of those cities that many of those people believed on him, meaning the majority of the city believed on him. I think about John chapter number 4 when that little woman who was the unlikely candidate had to get anybody to Jesus, a messed up situation, a situation where nobody would rather would listen to this woman a claim that she had found some new life or some new man to change her life. And she walks into town and tells them, I found the cross who told me everything that I've done. And the Bible says as they're walking back, Jesus says, behold, Hold, lift up your eyes. The fields are white with harvest. I believe every man of Samaria was walking out there to see this Jesus. We find in many situations where many people come to Christ and believe on him. And here, that happened. I mean, I'm talking about through the ministry of Christ. We see that opposition crowd, open opposition. That indifferent crowd. We see that believing crowd. We find that same Three, those same three categories right after he gets Lazarus up out of the grave. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we see these three reactions on display. We see the responses of faith, the responses of hostility, and the responses of indifference all represented right here. I want to outline this real quickly this morning, but I want to pull a question before I do out of verse 47. And this is what I want you to think about. And this is the message this morning as I talk about everything else. This is the message this morning. Look at verse 47. Then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? And the Pharisees are asking, What are we going to do about this situation? What, how are we going to handle this? Here, what are we going to do with Jesus? And so I want to preach this morning on what do ye? Not what do we, because salvation is not a collective thing. Salvation is an individual thing. And what you do with Jesus, it, it is not depending on what your mom and daddy does. It is not depending on what your brother or sister does. It is not depending on what your grandparents have done. It is not matter what anybody else has done. What do ye, what are you going to do with Jesus? What do ye? Look, number one, some believed. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. The Bible says here, some believed. Some, many of them believed. They had saw the raising of Lazarus and they come to Mary and they witnessed the miracle and what had happened and they believed on him. Listen, they saw it with their eyes, but then they did more than just see it with their eyes. They contemplated it with their mind and they thought to themselves, this is significant. This is a big deal. He must be who he says he is. And they come to the only right conclusion. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one to place our faith in. Now we can make that little statement believed and not, we do it a lot of times, maybe you don't, believed on him. And we pass by that in our Bible sometimes, we don't make much about it. 
I tell you, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't highlight and stuff in my preaching Bible because I got ADHD. But uh, if you got a Bible that you mark in, that'd be a good line to underline. Believed on him. That sounds real simple, but I'm telling you, it is critical. It sounds really uh, maybe uh, not that important, but it is the most important statement really in this whole situation is that they believed on him. They believed on him. Why? Because saving faith is always in Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. He says later on in our gospel, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, Peter said it like this, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Bible said some believed on him. They had heard what he said, and they had seen what he had done, and they believed believed on him. What do ye? What are you going to do with Jesus? You've heard the preaching of the gospel. You've heard it over and over and over again. You've seen the works that it's done in other people's life. You've seen the change that has taken place. You've heard the testimony of it taking place in people's life and what it's done for them. What do ye? Are you going to believe on him? Are you going to stay in your trespass and sin? Are you going to stay and dead uh, in your trespass? Are you going to stay uh, uh, d- d- turning him away, rejecting him and dying in your sin. What do ye with Jesus? Some believed. Verse 46. Several betrayed. Now many believed in Jesus in verse 45. Seen the significance of Lazarus' resurrection. I'll tell you the saddest statement in verse 45 is many. You say, how's that sad? Isn't it better than few? Yeah, but it's not as good as all. Y'all hear me? Many's better than few, but it's not as good as all. You would think that crowd seeing something like that, you'd think the whole crowd would believe on him. That's what people say today. I just need a sign. I just need to see something. I got to see God. If you're real out there, Lord, please. If you're real, let me see something. And that whole crowd saw something big, huge. They didn't believe it, though. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, look at verse 46. But... Y'all know what but is? That's a conjunction. That means it's changing direction. There's a contrast in verse 45 and 46. But some of them went their ways to tell to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, I know there's some people that say, well, you don't know if they went with ill intent. Well, I don't think the Holy Ghost would have used but right there. Because when you put that word but, there is a contrasting of what's happening in the two verses. So if the first verse is that they believed, the second verse, the but must mean these, this crowd must have betrayed him. Here's the thing. They know where the Pharisees stand on him. They know what they want. They, these, this crowd knows what the Pharisees want to do with him. Why else would they go to him? I just believe with all of my heart that these people knew, knowing the bitter hatred the Pharisees had for Jesus, their intent to go tell the Pharisees was hostile. They betrayed him. It gives us the idea they had no good intentions. Somebody said, well, they might have been witnessing to him. They might have been trying to explain the case. They may have been even maybe just confused. No, the Bible gives them. I believe that. I just believe all the Bible, all the words in my Bible, okay? I believe every one of them means something. And I believe there's a contrasting there's a crowd here that betrays him now watch this this crowd we'll talk more about it in a minute as far as we know 
didn't join up with the Pharisees yet. We'll get there in a minute. They just went and told them. And here's what this crowd walks away. Well, we didn't reject him, but we didn't receive him. We're just going to kind of, we're going to stay neutral in this thing. Just keep reading the story. We'll get there in a minute. You'll find out what happens with the neutral crowd, that neutral crowd. So some believe several betray. Let me ask you, what are you going to do with him? I tell you, there's a lot of people betraying him with their lives. I mean, again, they see what God has done. They hear what God has done. They, they claim they believe the Bible, but I'm telling you, you'd never know it out there. They claim they believe the Bible, but you'd never know it looking up their social media pages. If you could find them, if they got them hid from everybody. Uh, listen, uh, you, you, they say they are Christians. They say believe, they believe the Bible, but my goodness, their attitude. Listen, they're betraying Jesus with their actions and their attitudes and their words. They're betraying Jesus. What do ye with Jesus? Then I see here the Sanhedrin were bewildered by the situation. Verses 47 through 57, the rest of this story, they are, the rest of this account, they are bewildered. They are, they are confused. What do we is the question they have. What are we going to do? I see number one, they are concerned, they are concerned, or they are, they are bewildered because they're concerned of losing. Look what they say in verse number 47. I mean, verse 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Here, here it is, they're concerned about losing their power. If all men believe on Jesus, guess what they're not going to need no more? They're not going to need the Pharisees and Sadducees no more. If all men believe that he is the Messiah, they're not going to need the Sanhedrin no more. If all men believe that he is the Messiah, they're not going to come to the Pharisees and Sadducees to teach them the law and traditions and things like that. They're going to lose all their power and control over the people. Then look what it says, and the Romans shall come and take away both, notice here, our place and nation. They're concerned with losing their power. They're concerned with losing their place. I believe that our there is indicative. They thought that was theirs. Not, not like this. Not like they thought that land was Israel's, which we know it is. It wasn't that. They thought it was there. Them Pharisees, those Sadducees, those that Sanhedrin court, they believed it was there. These people are ours. We control them. We have power over them. And we have this place here. And if everybody, if everybody, if everybody believes on him, and here's what they're concerned is, we'll get here in a minute, but the Passover's coming. There's going to be a whole bunch of Jews around here. And if they believe he's the Messiah, Rome's going to hear, and they're going to think we're having a revolt. They're going to think we're leading a rebellion. And I'm telling you what they're going to do. They're going to shut it down. They're going to come, and they're going to strip us of our land. They're going to strip us of the power. Matter of fact, the Pharisees and Sadducees in that place, the Romans let them do a lot of things on their own. Remember, Pilate said, hey, he tried to pass it off at first. Say, hey, this is not nothing to do with Rome. Y'all handle business on your own. You handle him on your own. And so they knew if they hear about it. They won't let us handle it on our own anymore. So they're bewildered because of the concern of losing. But then I see they're bewildered because of the counsel of their leader in verse 49 through 52. And one of them named Caiaphas being the high priest that same year said unto them he know nothing at all. And this is what he says in verse 50. We've got to read what he's saying here in context of what's being said. Nor consider that is it expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Now, notice this. He presents them with an either-or dilemma. Now, that's not true, but he, he presents them with an either-or dilemma. Here it is. Either this one man dies, 
and we keep our nation? Or we let him live and we lose our nation? That's what he's saying. He said, guys, y'all not understanding what's going on here. Y'all not catching on. If we let this one man live, it's going to cost us the whole nation. But if we'll kill that one man, and this is what he says, basically in layman's terms, isn't it better for one man to die than the whole nation to be killed? Isn't it better for one man to die than the whole nation to go under? Let's just, y'all get, and so, so y'all hear what I'm saying? He's saying this, it's an either or, it's an either or dilemma. Either Jesus dies or the nation perishes. Now here's what it is. He's got this patriotic sense about him, right? We got to keep the nation. We can't lose the nation. But you know what Caiaphas, really it's all the hatred and jealousy he has for Jesus. That's why he makes this statement. Now, I see his policy, but then I see his prophecy. I'm glad God can take wickedness and do right with it. He can. He can do it. And I don't mean they don't give us the right to go do wicked. But he's not, he, he is saying, I, I've read that verse, I'm just, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, I've read that verse thinking, hallelujah, one man died for the nation, hallelujah. That's not what he was talking about primarily. But God used his words. In verse number 51, and this spake he not of himself, meaning this, this man didn't come up with that on his own. He, he, this, this, he's not just speaking to be speaking but being high priest that year, wait a minute, who the high, who's the high priest? God can use that high priest. God can take the words of that high priest. Wait, the high priest is supposed to be speaking for God. And we know he hadn't been. We know there's a lot of messed up stuff going on in Jerusalem, a lot of stuff going on with the Sanhedrin and, and the high priest, all that kind of stuff. We know it wasn't right. But that's the high priest is supposed to be doing. Look what it says. Being high priest that year, he prophesied. That Jesus should die for that nation. <laughs> and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. God ordained an opposite meaning with Caiaphas' words. Jesus is going to die for that nation. But he's not just going to die for that nation. He's going to die for all the nations of the world to gather everybody under of the Lord. He spoke these cynical, criminal words of trying to look like a political hero. But instead, God takes those words and unwittingly Caiaphas prophesies that Christ is going to die a sacrificial death. God's sovereignty turned his wicked, blasphemous words into truth. His policy, let's, let's get rid of him. His prophecy, oh, you're going to. Then I see the condemnation of the Lord in verse 53. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. They all agreed. All 70 plus men there. We're going to put them to death. Now you think about that for a moment. The high priest proposes to execute Jesus. The Sanhedrin approves the proposal. Here we already see the beginning of a false or an illegal trial in Jesus' case. They had already sentenced him to death and he had not even had a trial yet. They had determined it did not matter what was going to happen in the next few hours, next few days, next few weeks. They were going to kill him. I see the condemnation of the Lord. The plot was this. They're going to put him to death. 
But then in the midst of it, there's almost a parenthetical, and it doesn't mean that it's not important, but there's a parenthetical statement almost in verse 54 and 55, kind of like it, 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 it seems as if it's disconnected, but it's not disconnected at all. Verse 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. Why is that so important? Because here's what it shows. It shows that God is going to be the one who appoints the time Jesus dies. The Pharisees can vote all they want to on it. The Sadducees can vote all they want to on it. The entire nation of Israel can vote against him. But until God sets it in order, it is not going to happen. Jesus is not going to die in any other way but the way God has designed it for, or uh, has determined for him to die. And the timing must be right. But then, says this, in that same verse, and many went out of the country, or the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, verse 55. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. That's important. This is the third Passover that's been mentioned in John's gospel. And it's the last Passover mentioned. And it's the last Passover needed. It's the last one going to be needed. Here's what it is. By law, these people have to purify themselves. They have to go. And so now all these people from all these outside countries and outside places are coming into Jerusalem and they're purifying themselves. And some would estimate that over a million people packed into the city during the three major fests, which, it, which uh, Passover will be one. I just thought it was kind of ironic, though, that the people were purifying themselves at the same time their leaders have stained themselves as they plot the death of the blameless Son of God. How ironic that the people are trying to purify themselves for this feast and the ones who are supposed to leave them religiously, they're not pure at all. They've got a plot to kill Jesus. But then it says in verse 56, they then sought they for Jesus, meaning the people are looking for this Jesus guy. Many of this is that indifferent crowd, but they're looking for him. Wonder what he's going to say here. Wonder what he's going to do here. Remember last time we were here at Passover? Remember the last feast we were here at? Remember what he'd done then? That was that, that, was that last time we was here was when he, when he healed that blind guy. Remember the, the ruckus that made? Wonder where he's at. Wonder where he's at. And they asked the question, what think ye that he will not come to the feast? So you think he's not coming? You think he's not here? You think he's not going to do it? And so they're, they're wondering. And here it is. This is that indifferent crowd. This crowd that doesn't believe on him. They just want some entertainment. This crowd doesn't believe on him. They just want some excitement. Maybe this crowd is sitting around saying, you remember, you remember a couple years ago, this, this feast stuff was kind of boring, wasn't it? But man, when that Jesus fella started showing up, man, he makes it pretty exciting. I mean, listen, listen, they didn't have, they didn't have YouTube and Tiki Talk and all that other stuff to scroll through all the time, so they needed some kind of entertainment. They didn't have a Super Bowl to keep people out of church on Sunday night. They, had, they, didn't have, they, they wanted to see what Jesus was going to do, right? What's he going to say next? I mean, man, he's, he puts them Pharisees on blast, man. He's always, they can't, qu- they can't answer his questions. They don't know what to do with him. I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if he's going to show up. Here it is. They showed an intense interest in Jesus, but no commitment to him. They were ultimately indifferent. They were anticipating his revi- revi- arrival at Passover, but this same crowd, just a, a couple of days away, is the same crowd going to cry, away with him, away with him, crucify him. See, that indifferent crowd with that fickle devotion 
prove no, no matter what concern or interest level they had with Jesus because they had not believed on him, they were just as hard-hearted as that hostile crowd was. And it won't be long they're going to join league with them. The proclamation, verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Here's, here's why they're asking. You think he's going to show up? Y'all know they've put out a decree. You know they put out a proclamation. If anybody sees him, they're supposed to report him because they want to arrest him. They knew that. I thought about this, the resurrection of Lazarus, like all of Christ's life and all of his ministry, forced people to make a decision. I told our Sunday school classes we started this personal evangelism course we've been doing. You can lead everybody to Jesus. Can't make them believe. You can't make them receive Jesus, but you can bring them up to the point of a decision. When you give a clear gospel presentation, it brings people to a decision they must make. And this morning, you have heard it over and over and over and over again. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings you to a decision to make. And you can use all the excuses in the world God ain't dealing with me. I just, I just ain't believing it. Just ain't believing it. You tell me you've heard the gospel that many times in your life. You know you're a sinner. You know you're lost before God. You know you can't save yourself. You know Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And you're going to tell me that's God's fault you're not saved? That's your fault. And you come to a decision this morning. A decision this morning to make with him. And listen, there are many in this story. They responded in faith. Others were indifferent. But some were murderously hostile towards him. But in all reality, it wasn't a three-way split. It was just a two-way split. Some believed and some did not. Many put their faith in him and all the others didn't. Here we are as Jesus is moving into this final Passover season. As we walk into chapter 12 here soon, we'll see that. And we see that it is not long that indifferent crowd joins league with that hostile crowd. And they all unite to crucify our Lord. And it won't be long. You indifferent crowd, you crowd that will not turn to Christ and repent of your sin, you crowd that walk out every single day unchanged, unmoved by the gospel, nothing is different about your life. It won't be long. You'll join that murderous crowd. You'll join that crowd hostile against Christ. Some will say, can you believe this young person has grown up to become such a wicked individual? I say, well, they were always indifferent as a teenager. As a young adult, they never were committed to Christ. They were always indifferent. And the indifferent crowd always joins the hostile crowd. Because there's no neutral with Jesus. You either got the life, you either have the son and have life, or you don't have the son. And, the Bible, and Jesus said this in John 3, if you don't have the son, condemnation's already on you. The question this morning is, is, what do ye?
What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you receive him or reject him? That's the only two responses. What are you going to do with him this morning? Believe him or not believe him? And, and the response you make today has eternal consequences. I'm not trying to put no scare to but none of us are promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow may hold. As young as you may be or as old as you may be, we don't know what tomorrow holds. I've read the obituaries the past two weeks of two or three high school students in this county and the counties around us who have their lives are gone now. We go to the graveyard just up the hill and there's graves of people who lived in their 70s and 80s and 90s but then there's graves who didn't make it past the day. There's graves of all sizes over in the graveyard up there. The question this morning is what do ye what are you going to do with Jesus this morning? And yeah, listen, you have the right to be indifferent, but I want you to understand as clear as I can say, when you say I'm indifferent, I'm just going to wait, you're rejecting the gospel of Christ. And there's no hope or no promise you'll ever get another chance. He's trying to scare me if I can. You're trying to do scare tech if I can. If I can say, hey, hey, don't wait too late. Why? Because I've got friends and I've got families that went to a grave that as far as I know, they're in hell today. Because this is what they tell me. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll never forget. I was talking about the other day, Ryan. October 31st of 2006, we lost one of our greatest friends. And I don't know, but every time I talk to Seth about the gospel, every time I try to, it was always a put it off, put it off, put it off. And I don't know where he stood before God. I'm not going to pretend like I know where he stands with God. I know there wasn't no fruit. It ain't about me being assured of it or not, but I'm saying, the question is, what are you going to do with him? What are you, he's here. He's presenting himself. You say, well, look, it's just our church girl. We ain't got no vision. Hey, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend like I know anybody's eternal destiny. I don't know your heart, but I know the Holy Ghost of God. Thursday said, here's the message. Here's the message. What do ye, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to keep being indifferent? I think about, I believe it was, I think Agrippa is the one who told Paul that almost thou persuadest me. But was it Festus that said come in a more convenient season? He wanted to put it off at a more convenient season and we never read of that convenient season happening in Festus' life. I'm glad God can save you anywhere, anytime, any place, but it won't be on your terms. It won't be, well, I want to be here. I want to be there. I'm going to wait until I get to this place in my life. I want to do all these things first. What are you going to do with Jesus this morning? What are you going to do with him this morning? He's here. He's willing to save this morning. He's willing to change your life. But there's a question. What do ye?
serious time right now. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Him? The man with the nail-scarred hands is calling, come. The sweet Spirit of God is wooing to come. Come to me, all ye heavy laden. I will give you rest. What are you going to do with it? I know we've got some children here. God is still opening that understanding of the gospel and all that. But there are some, you understand the gospel, but you're putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And it might be too late the next time. You may never get a next time. Or you might be to the point next time the gospel presented that you've yoked up with that hostile crowd. And it's away with him. Away with him. Today, you're not saying that today. You're just saying, wait, wait, wait. But tomorrow, you might be away with him. Crucify him. We want nothing to do with this man. That same crowd who is indifferent here just a few days later, we want nothing to do with this man. Oh, God, help us. That's the danger. Being raised under the shadow of the gospel. Being indifferent towards it. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? know for sure that if you left this world today that you'd be in the presence of the Lord I mean for sure do you know that or if not I wouldn't be indifferent about that I wouldn't wait I have no idea the heart of any person in this room I know I know, I know that's where I was supposed to be this morning. I'm pleading, do not wait. And I say this to us that are saved, do not wait to tell another soul about Jesus. Do not wait to tell another soul about the saving grace of God.